0: Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would show us the mercies of your Son, Jesus Christ. That you would do for us by way of your Spirit what we're unable to do for ourselves. That you would show us Christ's grace in the text this morning as we open our eyes and look to the text. God, be, be speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been struck... Over the past few weeks with the realization again that how we tend to respond to something is often shaped by the degree to which we think we have need of it. How we tend to respond to something is often shaped by the degree to which we think we have need of it. And at least one of the ways this manifests itself in our hearts is to say We don't know what we have until it's gone. Or we don't know what we have until we're right at the cusp of losing it. So, one of the characters in the award-winning sitcom, The Office, good old Andy Bernard, puts it this way. So he's talking about how when he was working at Dunder Mifflin, which is this fictional office space that all these characters work in, he's working at Dunder Mifflin. All he can think about were the good old days when he was back in college at Cornell and a part of this you know, a cappella group, and so all he could think about were the good old days. But now that he's left Under Mifflin for his dream job back at Cornell, where he attempted to kind of recapture some of his, some of that past good old days, all he can think about are the friends that he made while he was at Dunder Mifflin, the good old days, right? And so he says, I wish there was a way to know that you're in the good old days before you've actually left them someone should write a song about that (laughs) and you know the sentiment is true mostly because we don't realize what's what's being held out to us when everything around us is fine you know or seems fine to us when everything around us appears normal when everything around us appears fine we don't realize what a gift something is but when it's gone or when we're at the edge of losing it we start to get some clarity Related to how fragile it is, how important, you know, significant it is, how appreciative we are of that thing. This is why tragedy can often help people, in a sense, gain clarity related to their, their priorities. Like we see that kind of theme in human existence. Because actually, one of the things that becomes normal to us that we don't really appreciate in the way that we should is life itself. You know, and even over the past few years with global pandemics and war between between nations and all these other kinds of fears, we've increasingly come to see in our culture how fragile we really are, you know? So the question becomes, what are we gonna do about it? Where do we turn in the midst of our desperation when we're confronted with our own frailty? How do we view the person of Jesus, you know? If we're exploring Christianity, if we're skeptical of the claims of Christ, or if we grew up in the church and we believed as long as we can remember, when we come to the person of Jesus, how do we view him as we recognize our frailty? You know, because the norm in our world is to view Jesus on the basis of the stuff that he offers us. We talked about it on Easter Sunday, and I said, hey, this is a theme that we're going to be returning to throughout John. But we talked about how There's hundreds of different Jesus's out there most of which are seen as the answer to, to to our own you know personal problems the one who's powerful enough to grant riches and wealth or health or a steady job or political power and control rather than the claim that was made at the end of the text last week do you remember Jesus had been invited by a group of Samaritans to stay with them and teach them. And we need to really spend some time, again, recognizing the enormity of that statement. The the Jews and Samaritans had a great amount of animosity between them, hatred, really, between these people groups. And yet, they invite Jesus to stay with them, this Jewish rabbi, to stay with them and teach them. And then they say this to the Samaritan woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, that he is indeed the Savior of the world. That's the claim. And the reason it's so so easy to embrace Jesus as gift giver, you know, Jesus as a cosmic genie who grants our wishes in this life. The reason it's so easy to embrace Jesus for his stuff rather than, or or the stuff that we think he offers us, rather than for who he really is on his own terms, on his own terms rather than on our terms, is because while we can see the usefulness of the stuff giver, you know, we can see the usefulness in our time of embracing a Jesus who offers us, like, who we think might offer us riches, who we think might offer us health, who we think might offer us a steady job, political power, right? We see the usefulness of all those things in our life But we don't see our need for a savior. And so we often don't respond properly to Jesus until we see that need. That's why Jesus himself, prior to to all of his teachings and in the midst of all of his miracles, you see this theme throughout all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You see Jesus continually, primarily talking to us about our need for him. Spiritually, right? As the basis for Everything he says after that. He starts the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because we don't see our need for a savior. We don't respond properly to Jesus until we see that need. Because we think everything is fine. You know, and in actuality, the kind of fine is actually reflected by that meme of the dog, cartoon dog sitting in a room with a cup of coffee. And the the room is burning down around him. You know, this is fine, he says. This is fine. That's the picture of the human heart. How we respond to the real Jesus, Jesus on his own terms, is often shaped by the degree to which we think we have need of him, and we often don't think we do. We don't see the truth related to that. But, you know, what we find in the text this morning is a progression in which, beginning with that kind of inadequate belief that's rooted in what we think Jesus should be doing for us. Someone here has an encounter with with Jesus, a skeptic, has an encounter with Jesus that shapes a different kind of response. Okay, so turn with me, if you haven't already, to John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, and it's here that we find a progression of faith. A progression of faith in which another skeptic encounters Jesus, but who, very much like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, he doesn't begin with a realized understanding of who Jesus is or what he's done. And really, very much like Nicodemus, he doesn't understand his neediness. So we find in the text four progressions of faith, starting in verses 43 to 46. Here's where we see, number one, problematic faith. Problematic faith, the first of our four progressions, problematic faith. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. All right, so a lot of themes, let's stop there for a minute. A lot of themes are repeated in John's gospel account. John will say something or he'll, he'll position a narrative at a certain place in the text because he wants to communicate something specific to the audience that he's writing to. But he's, he wants to do it over and over and over again he wants to make sure that his readers really grasp these realities. And as we've talked about at length before, these realities tend to be super unintuitive to our ears. Like we hear them and initially they don't make a lot of sense to us, right? So John's bringing them up again and again. But, but at least one of these themes that he wants to make sure his readers understand is the reality of problematic faith. I mean, we, we've talked about it before. It's probably something that this morning is you know, familiar to you if you've been with us up to this point. Problematic faith that can often be rooted in a Jesus as sign-giver mentality rather than a Jesus as Savior, Jesus as King and Savior. Problematic faith for John can be defined in our context this way and I, I think this is actually in your notes in your liturgy packet. Faith improperly grounded in the signs Jesus offers but not in Jesus himself. That's how John would define problematic faith in our context this morning. Faith improperly grounded in the signs Jesus offers, but not Jesus himself. Having said that, I think a couple of questions could be prompted at this point. Because you might be reading this text and you might say, okay, Jeremy, two two things. First of all, how do we see that here? How do we see problematic problematic faith in this text where the Galileans are welcoming Jesus as he comes in But secondly, you know, and maybe more to the point, assuming that is what's in the text, what's wrong with believing in Jesus on the basis of signs that he performs? You know? After all, isn't it right and good to go to Jesus in our need because we know he can answer? Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's just start with that first question. How do we see this theme of problematic faith in the text? Because these Galileans, you know, they're greeting Jesus as he comes. Well, so, all right, Jesus is continuing the journey. Let's look at the context. When did he initially set out on this journey? The beginning of chapter 4. Do you remember what it said he was doing? He was headed from Judea to Galilee, but the text says he had to pass through Samaria first. And, you know, we've talked about how technically he didn't have to do that. In fact, a lot of Jewish people would have gone around Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. But the text says he had to. Why? Because he prioritized Samaria. Samaria was a priority for Jesus, even in the midst of such animosity between Jews and Samaritans. The fact that they were seen as outsiders in the midst of his culture. And yet, so what we find in the text is actually something of an inclusio. So what's an inclusio? Well, it's a literary tool, it's a bookended structure in which an author will use it in order to draw attention to some of the more significant points in the text. So when you're reading the scriptures and you see this, it can help you see what's the main point of the passage, what's the focus that John wants his readers to have, right? So an inclusio kind of works like, like I said, it's, it's bookends, but it's almost like a sandwich where there's similar things on the outside increasingly moving in to then a center, right? that then goes back to the outside. So, all right, difficult to teach unless we have kind of the structure, but, but look here, right? So the way inclusio works in this case, 1A, right, where we're introduced to a theme, then, one, uh, then uh, 2A, then 3, that's the middle of the sandwich, okay? Then 2B, then 1B, so we're back to where we started. So let me just walk us through this, all right? You, you can, uh, just trust me. Um, You can actually see it unfolding if you just turn back. So so go in your text back to chapter 2 where 1A, so here's 1A. This is like the first loaf of bread. Jesus is in Cana of Galilee and someone approaches him, in this case it's his mom, approaches him with a desperate situation. He grants grace and mercy by way of a miraculous intervention and there's genuine faith as a result, okay? Okay. So we see that in 1A. Jesus in Cana of Galilee, someone approaches him, desperate situation, grants grace and mercy, miraculous intervention, genuine faith. Okay, 2A. It's like the the first piece of lettuce on the sandwich. 2A. But then Jesus starts to encounter a problematic faith that's rooted in the signs that he performed rather than who he is. So if you remember at the end of chapter 2, there are people who've seen his signs and wonders. They saw his authority in the temple. and, And it says... They believe, but it also says that Jesus did not trust himself to them. Do you remember this? Okay? Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew that they had this spurious faith that was so focused on what he could do for them, but not on Jesus himself. So, right? So, 1A, Cana of Galilee, desperate situation, grace, mercy, belief. 2A, he he encounters problematic faith rooted in signs. Then 3, here's the middle. This is the meat of the sandwich, right? Jesus goes through Samaria where there's an openness now. In Samaria there's an openness to what Jesus is preaching. There's a stated belief. He is the savior of the world. The Samaritans embracing Jesus on his own terms. On the basis of what he's saying about himself. That's three. That's the very middle. All right. But then Jesus leaves Samaria in 2b, right? He ends up back in Galilee where he finds again a problematic faith. This is the other side of the sandwich. Now we're working our way back. Problematic faith that's rooted in signs that he performed. And now 1B in our text this morning, he's back in Cana, where someone approaches him with a desperate situation. He grants grace and mercy by way of a miraculous intervention that results in genuine faith. So we're back at the starting point. Do we see this? And so what we see here is a whole structure that functions to contrast between these two bookends of problematic faith, these two bookends of actually a miraculous intervention in the midst of problematic faith, contrasted with Jesus being received among the Samaritans. So what's happening in Samaria, what's happening in Galilee are being contrasted. And actually Jesus points to the contrast in the text. After telling us Jesus departed for Galilee, John reflects that Jesus testified. You know, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, I think what fits best with this context is that Jesus is saying he has no honor among his own people. Whereas in Samaria he's shown honor, among his own people, he's seen as someone who could possibly grant political power and control to a people who desperately desire that in the midst of Roman oppression, but he's not viewed as savior, that this is indeed the savior of the world. Why? Because uniquely, his people did not think they needed a savior. They think is it related to sin? Do you remember Nicodemus? There's this teacher of Israel who believes that, and he's, he's made a career out of teaching people, that they can actually pull themselves up by way of the law. That they can obey enough for God to love them. Right? So they see a need for something that Jesus can offer them in that time. But they don't see a need for a savior. They don't see a need for a savior. This is why then in verse 45 when he comes to Galilee. Sure the Galileans welcome him, welcome him. But they welcome him on the basis of what he did in Jerusalem at the feast. On the basis of the signs that he performed. And if, if you don't believe me we'll get to it in the next section. Jesus backs me up on this. Okay so. The purpose here is is to demonstrate the reality of what we already read in the prologue weeks ago. Do you remember John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13? John writes, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. That's what this text is showing us, right? So it's showing us this verse in action. His own people reject him as Savior because they don't think they need a Savior. They think everything's fine. But this also shows us not only that Jesus sees this kind of faith that's rooted in signs and miraculous wonders, what Jesus can offer, as problematic, but it shows us, secondly, what's wrong with approaching Jesus primarily for his signs rather than Savior. Look, Look what else John writes in this prologue. But to all who did receive him, Right? He came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you see the, the distinction. Those who realize their deep need of him, like the people he encounters in Samaria, who approach Jesus with empty hands of faith, knowing they can't do anything worthy of God's approval, those are the ones who demonstrate proper faith. And those who think they can somehow gain salvation on their own, they see themselves as better than. They don't need a savior. Not really. I mean, maybe a little, but not really. Not in the sense that Jesus means. That their situation or circumstance is not all that bad. It's fine. It's the, dog, the cartoon dog in the room, right? It's fine. They're actually rejecting Jesus himself. When, when we view Jesus as a sign giver, And not as a savior, here's what we demonstrate. We demonstrate a heart that still desires to be in control, to still be at the center of our own lives, and that still operates in a way that we think we can save ourselves. We think we can save ourselves. We think we can do enough, or we think we can be enough. So the text really begins with problematic faith. Faith improperly grounded in the signs Jesus offers, but not Jesus himself. Not Jesus on his own terms. We so often want the stuff that we think Jesus maybe can give us in this life, rather than Jesus himself, rather than being reconciled to God, you know? The father rather than having relationship restored with the father we want the stuff we don't care about our standing with God we care about getting the stuff this is really like if I was to put this in a theological category I would put this in the the theological realm of the yeah but what have you done for me lately Jesus right that's the name of this Jesus yeah but what have you done for me lately I mean yeah there's the cross what have you done for me lately right that's the idea here But that brings us to the next progression from problematic faith now in the text to petitioning faith. In the midst of personal tragedy, we see petitioning. Because this first section ends, you know, by sharing this detail that in Capernaum there's this official whose son was ill. That gives us the context of what's happening. But now look at verses 47 to 48. When this man heard that Jesus had come From Judea to Galilee, he went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. All right, in case we need further evidence that, you know, belief based on the signs and wonders primarily is problematic. I I mean, I said Jesus was going to back me up on that. Jesus reiterates here to this man... Who has turned to Jesus in the midst of his own desperation. And he says to him, unless you, and that's really a plural you. Speaking to the Galileans at large, this is a plural. NIV has it right when it says you people. Because he's talking to the, the crowds as well as to this man who comes out of this crowd. Right? Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You will not believe. But it's in the midst of this desperation that the man turns to Jesus. And he demonstrates a petitioning faith. Petitioning faith in this text is faith grounded in desperate circumstances. So, whereas problematic faith is faith improperly grounded in the signs that Jesus offers, but not Jesus himself. Petitioning faith is faith grounded in desperation. And before we get a sense of the details, let me just step aside real quick pastorally. It's it's become kind of a popular view to say that um, this, is, this is the same event that we see in the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke and Mark, where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And so it's it's pretty popular view to say, okay, so John's relating the same event, but he's got some of the details very differently. And so this is a problem with reconciliation across the gospel accounts. But I think it's a mistake to, I think we, we tend to manufacture problems with the Bible. I think it's a mistake to assume that if you have two healing narratives that seem remotely similar, that they must be the same event. Okay, like, in fact, it appears very clear, like on the face of it, this is not the same event. And given that all four gospel accounts. They all testify the fact that Jesus spent days healing and ministering to crowds from place to place. We should frankly expect that some of these events would have been similar in nature. Someone approaching Jesus because their son or daughter or servant was sick and dying. A common enough occurrence in the first century, just like it's a common enough occurrence today. In fact, not only is there no evidence at all that here in John 4 we're looking at a, a Gentile, like the centurion, I think we actually see some evidence in the, in the context Jesus saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, I think we see some, con- some clues, some evidence for the fact that he maybe he's actually Jewish. So this isn't the same event, told in a different way, contradictory to those other events, no reason to conflate them. And when we do that kind of thing, we miss some of the purpose of the passage that the, the author wants to write this for, for the original audience, wants to include this in the narrative, which is to show... How the problem at the heart of the people is really solved in Jesus, but the, that the problem centrally is that they don't see their problem. Okay, so the, re- the response from Jesus here indicates that for this man his faith is still incomplete. He's demonstrated a kind of petitioning faith, like petitioning, coming before the Lord, making a request on on behalf of his child. He's turned to Jesus in the midst of what's certainly personal tragedy. It kind of actually echoes Mary turning to Jesus, except that the stakes are much higher. Mary going to Jesus early in chapter 2, which I said is a parallel event in a lot of ways. And Jesus makes a distancing statement to Mary there as well. Do you remember? He says to her, you know, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He makes a distancing statement here too, but for a different reason. See, this man has either seen or heard about Jesus performing these signs, So he turns to Jesus for a miracle. He wants, Jesus wants him to know, as Osborne writes, astonishment that is anchored only in the sensational will never suffice for genuine faith in the Savior of the world. Astonishment that is anchored only in the sensational will never suffice for genuine faith in the Savior of the world. And this is true for all the reasons we've already said. Having said that, We do see progression because, listen, Jesus offers these signs for a reason. You know, if the signs were valueless, Jesus wouldn't perform signs. He performs them for a reason and the reason is that the signs point to the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. Like, that's the whole point of a sign. In John's account, Jesus calls these miracles that he performs, signs. And what's a sign? It's it's an indicator of something else. Something much greater. Like one of the highlights of my sabbatical last year was when our family took an extended trip to Florida, a road trip with six children. Okay, And on this trip, we saw many signs, some of them big, spectacular signs, right? But the reason they were exciting wasn't the sign itself. Like imagine a trip that's based only on signs. After days of driving with six children, you finally arrive at the historic Cocoa Beach Pier and you all climb out of the Suburban and you see the sign, the big, you know, welcome to the historic Cocoa Beach Pier and you get your picture taken at the sign, you know, and then it's like, everybody back in. No, you don't do that. Like we proved we were here. No, you don't do that. You go bodyboarding and you eat alligator burgers at the restaurant at the end of the pier while you enjoy the amazing view, right? Like. Imagine traveling to Orlando just to get a picture of the Welcome to Magic Kingdom sign draped over the highway, and then you just keep on driving. Well, that was great. Like, this, like the sign isn't valueless. let lets you know where you are, it lets you know where to go to see the thing, but the sign has a purpose. And the purpose of Jesus' sign, his signs that he performs, is to point people toward the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. This is why Carson writes a little bit further than Osborne. He says, Too much interest in in the raw materials, too much interest in the raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. Miracles cannot compel genuine faith. But the apologetic value of miracles, though often exaggerated, should not be despised. He says Jesus himself can encourage faith on that basis, especially amongst those too skeptical to trust his word. And that's what we see here in John. Jesus is encountering people who are too skeptical to trust in his word, and so he's using these signs as a means, at least in part, to encourage faith on this basis in who it is that he is and what it is that he's done. And That's what he does here. That's why we're moving from problematic faith to a petitioning faith to now a preliminary faith on the basis of Jesus' words, because it turns out that's precisely what Is happening here so verses 49 to 50 the official said to him sir come down before my child dies Jesus said to him go your son will live the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way you know so you you can see here an encounter with Jesus that begins without much thought as to what Jesus has claimed about himself as to who Jesus really is, on the basis of Jesus' own testimony. But now, after this encounter, there's faith in what Jesus has said, faith in his word. Here we see preliminary faith, whereas the problematic faith in the introduction was improperly grounded in the signs he performed, the stuff he was doing, rather than Jesus himself. Preliminary faith is faith properly grounded in the words of Christ and what he said. It's faith in Jesus as Jesus discloses himself to us rather than a faith in a Jesus on the basis of some kind of wish list that we have that we kind of hope he'll check off. But how did this kind of faith come about, you know? Did this guy work up this kind of faith in which he was able to to leave Jesus' company, to go back without Jesus... Not really knowing for certain that his son has been healed, but believing nonetheless. In the midst of this kind of desperation. Was he able to do this because he, he was so smart that he figured it out? He was like, ah, I know who you are. Yeah, sure, I believe. And I'll show, I'll, I'll walk home. You know? Is it because he was so religious that he was able to work up the right amount of faith? It's like, yeah, now I've got the right, I've got the strong enough faith to do this. No, it came about because of the mercies of Christ, which is also the theme that we see in John. Like, look at the text again. Even after Jesus' rebuke, the man is single-minded. He has one thing on his mind. He's a fearful father, and that's understandable, right? So he's a scared dad. He believes, even imperfectly, he believes that Jesus can do something about it. He certainly knows, at the very least, that he can't do anything about this. He can't keep his child from dying. He may be a royal official, you know? A servant of Herod Antipas in the royal courts. He might be a man of considerable power and influence, you know, and wealth. But none of his power or influence or money can do anything about this problem. All he has here is Jesus. And Jesus, warning the man not to get so stuck in the signs that he misses who Jesus is, then does what only Jesus is able to do in this circumstance. He heals the child. He gives grace. He heals the son. And this granting of grace has the kind of effect on this royal official that allows him to put feet to his faith and go home. Believing that Jesus has healed the son. Believing in Jesus on the basis of Jesus' testimony. On the basis of what Jesus has spoken. On the basis of words. Not just what he's seen, Like, he sets himself apart from those with problematic faith. How? By not demanding that Jesus comes with him and does something that he can see for himself. He trusts in Jesus' word, but it's important to say that the source of that trust are the mercies of Christ. This isn't like a, so this man was able to do, respond in these ways, so go and do likewise. The story is foundationally about what Christ has done that actually changes our own postures. And this is what brings us now to the final progression. Because we began with this problematic faith, faith improperly grounded on the signs Jesus did rather than Jesus himself. Then we saw this petitioning faith, this grounded, faith grounded in desperation, And then because of the love and mercy of Jesus being a God who can and should be trusted and turned to in desperation and who's gracious in the midst of our desperation, we see a preliminary faith. Faith properly grounded in the words of Christ, the promises that he holds out. And all that leads now to proficient faith. And this is where we see faith properly grounded in the person of Christ, in who he is, right? So verses 51 to 54, and as he was going down, his servants met him As this man was going down, literally down, so if you remember what Paul Burr preached a few weeks ago, Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, so the only way to get to where he was going was downhill. But he was met by a servant who was coming up to bring good news. His son was recovering, you know. Despite the fact that he was on death's doorstep, now he's made this miraculous Really unexpected turn to life. And upon inquiring as to when this happened, he learns the fever broke at about the seventh hour. Seventh hour is probably referring to seven hours after sunrise. It'd be about 1 p.m. And this news that he receives strengthens that preliminary faith in the words of Jesus because it was at this precise time that Jesus told the royal official that his son would be healed, you know. So he sees the mercies of Christ in action here and one of the reasons we can see a preliminary faith in the words of Christ now turned proficient faith, proficient meaning more complete or mature, it's because this man now proclaims the truth of who Jesus is, the words that he spoke to his entire family to his whole household, who then come to believe. And this is really the gospel paradigm of the early church. I mean, we see this kind of language for gospel belief throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, a God-fearing Greek known as Cornelius is saved, the text says, along with his entire household. In Acts chapter 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira comes to saving faith in Christ, the text tells us, along with her entire household. In Acts chapter 18 the text says that Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in Jesus with his entire household in the city of Corinth the gospel the reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do when believed when we see our need for him and throw ourselves upon his mercies it has a generational effect and frankly I think that's a generational effect that the church for previous decades has largely ignored. I think this is something we need to remind ourselves of. The generational effect of the gospel, generational discipleship, the, the significance of this. This is the gospel paradigm that, that we need to continue to see in our own households. And the reason all of this is important is because of how easy it is, you know, to do otherwise. What, what I mean is, it's our nature, but what I mean is, it's so easy to approach Jesus only on our terms. And this is where we get to really the ground level of what John is writing about. Of how he instructs us at gospel life, you know. It's so easy to approach Jesus on our terms. It's, it's when we think of John's intended audience that we start to see the power and significance of this particular narrative and what happens here. And why John decides to include this. Because you remember in John 20 he says, well look, there's a lot of things that happened. I included a lot, but there's a lot that I omitted. Everything that he writes here is very intentional. And if you remember from that first week in our series when we looked at this purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, John's writing in order that his readers might believe that the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one for whom the people of Israel have been waiting for centuries Is none other than Jesus himself and I argued you know from that I think the intended audience for the gospel according to John is at least initially Jewish agnostics God-fearing Greeks but specifically Jewish agnostics were spread across the ancient Near East they know something of their Hebrew scriptures they're reluctant you know they're reluctant to embrace Jesus but they're they're hearing what John has to say In this account. And so think for a moment about what John's communicating to this group of agnostic Jewish people spread across the ancient Near East. Beware this impulse in which we think we can approach God on our own terms, you know. Beware this impulse in which We attempt to seek out God, but that attempt is driven by some ambition that we have that doesn't actually line up or reflect the heart of Christ and that, in fact, intends to take Christ and make him in our own image, you know, like create a Jesus in our own image. Carson helpfully sums this up. He says, like, like listen to how all this works together as we wrap up chapter four this morning. The emphasis on the receptivity of the Samaritans, right? which is like the middle of that sandwich, that inclusio. The emphasis on the receptivity of the Samaritans, the introduction of the title, the savior of the world, that he receives while he's in Samaria, right? And the interest of the Gentiles, in line with the cosmic scale that the prologue has already established, conspire to warn Jewish readers not to miss out on the blessing to which they should be heir. John intends to attract some of his own people, to the good news of Christ by making them envious. While Jesus' blessings of new life and forgiveness are going out to others, his readers are in danger of being passed by. They urgently need to seek out Jesus, the Messiah, on his terms Not on theirs. In other words, John's desire for them is to turn and see Jesus as Jesus disclosed himself. Not to be reluctant any longer, but to see their need and to throw themselves on Christ's mercies. And the same is true for readers today. Like, this is where, like, obviously the, the application of this text extends far beyond ethnic Israel in the first century. You know, to us, to our time, to our culture. You know, whenever we read the Bible, and I think this might be helpful to you. Whenever you open up the Bible to read at home, whether you're here this morning, you've been a believer your whole life, or you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christianity, and, you know, we're a church for skeptics, so we welcome those who have questions, genuine questions, right? And so as, as we're wrestling with this, whenever we open with the, up the Bible at home, regardless of where we're at, I think the appropriate way to approach the Scriptures is to be seeking out you know, what is the mutual human condition that I as a reader, that we together collectively in our time, share with this original audience? The mutual problem that we share, the mutual solution that's offered. There's one author that kind of famously calls this the fallen condition focus of the text. That is something that's helpful in our, qu- our quiet times. Something that's helpful as we um, try to figure out what the Bible is about, as we're trying to read and investigate the Bible for ourselves. What is this mutual problem we share, the mutual solution that's offered, this mutual condition that we have along with this specific audience? And in this case, here it is, we urgently need to seek out Jesus on his terms and not on ours. We're constantly approaching Jesus on our terms. We think he can give us what, you know, our checklist. And where we see Jesus disclosed on his terms is not a God who enters human history to check off some kind of wish list for me or for you, for his people not some kind of a cosmic janitor or genie to grant earthly wishes or clean up earthly messes but rather a God who comes to die for his people who deserve death and judgment because of our rebellious nature toward God but he comes to address our frailty by defeating death by way of the cross and resurrection that by faith in what he's accomplished, rather than something we think we can do for ourselves, we can be saved. You know, like, what, what do we see in the text? A fearful father and a dying son. And he's begging Jesus to heal his son. What do we see in the gospel? A demonstration of, of God's love for us is that the father sent the son who willingly came to die. The father sends the son to die. Jesus comes to die. That his people might know him. But the father raises Jesus from the dead that we might have life in what he's done. Those are his terms. Those are the terms that he asks you to seek out and that's the challenge. That's the challenge for us, right? Is is to ask ourselves, what are the ways in my life that I'm expecting Jesus to do something on my terms. I'm coming to Jesus on my terms. That even if I might give, like I said last week, a mental assent of gospel, like I know cognitively what the gospel is, that I actually view Jesus as, some, as something of a sign giver or so, because I don't really think I'm that bad because I really do think I'm better than others, right? There's a religiosity to this that, that Jesus is confronting head-on, but also for those who are seeking spiritually, like those who are skeptics, those who are investigating for themselves, the, The task is right for us to investigate on the basis of what Jesus said not not on the basis of like approaching him on my terms but what are his terms what are his terms what is it that Jesus says about who he is and so we proclaim that we proclaim this gospel of grace every week from the word because centrally that's what the word teaches we proclaim it every week as we gather together at this table because that's what this table preaches this is the Lord's table in which we proclaim to one another the death of Christ. His, his body broken for us. His blood shed that we might have life in Christ. A reminder that he goes with us. So this, this uh, meal together is a meal for believers. This is a time for believers to remind one another of the grace of Christ. And so if you're a believer... We invite you forward to take this. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're a skeptic, we we invite you forward. Walk with us certainly if you you desire. Observe and look. Ask questions. This is an opportunity for us to declare the means by which Jesus makes us right before God. It's an opportunity for us to declare the need that we have for him and the great Savior that we have to meet that need. So let's come forward now, take of the elements and bring them back to our seats.